Hello, my name is Reverend Seth Nelson, and I am the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Ronan, Montana. Join in weekly to hear the good news of God's love proclaimed over your life. You can follow us on Podbean and iTunes. God bless you this day. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Identity is a word and concept that strikes deep at the heart of humanity. Who a person is individually, who a people are collectively, how a state or nation defines itself and is defined by others. All are part of one's identity and the identity of one's group. Identity can be deep, complex, and hard to define. Can we ever know the full extent of who we are or the nature of groups in which we identify? On the other hand, there are many aspects and markers of who we are that are easily recognizable. Your name sets you apart and distinguishes you from others. Your job, your home, your family, your homeland, all these things and many, many, and many more make up your identity as a distinct person and child of God. Whether you be your hair color or your height, there are all sorts of identity markers that set us apart from the masses. Identity can be just as distinct between groups of individuals as between the individuals themselves. There are all sorts of identity markers that distinguish one group of people from another, no matter how similar or different they may be. Towns and cities are known for their different locations, buildings, and the various cultures that get established among their citizens over time. Schools are distinguished for their teachers, graduates, administrators, <laughs> and the various programs and fields of studies in which they excel. In the church, beliefs, doctrines, and practices set different communities and faith groups apart from each other. Uh, parties are distinguished by their platforms, nations by their laws, anthems and flags, and sports teams by their mascots, <laughs> and the cities from which they herald. Questions concerning group identities are often more difficult to discern than questions about the identity of an individual. It can take a lot more work, discussion, debate, compromise, and discernment to answer the question, who are we, than to answer the more basic question, who am I? Group identity is something that emerges from between people, with and without our direction or control. For instance, we all participate in our national identity as Americans. But I think that most of us would say that there are aspects of who and how we are as a country that we would change if we could. The fact that we cannot make these changes proves that our national identity is beyond any individual's ability to control or determine. Groups are known by the sum of their members. Collective aspects of what binds them together as distinct from other groups and the common bonds that are only shared within the group in question. 
It's perhaps no surprise then that groups can feel easily threatened by outsiders. Those who upend norms and the status quo and foreigners. If a person comes from another region or country, it can seem like a threat to the norms established in their new home simply by coming from a different place with a different set of norms. If a person has a different religion from the majority of their neighbors, different customs and food preferences, weird ways of dressing, different kinds of music, or whatever else the case may be, can immediately feel like a threat to a group's identity. It is one thing to be confident in your own identity as a person. It's quite another thing to be well-versed in the identity of who we are together and how you may or may not fit into that identity. Well, believe it or not, questions concerning group identity are at the heart of our first lesson from Isaiah for this week. Isaiah was speaking to the Israelites roughly 70 years after they had been conquered, defeated, and forced to live as captives in Babylon under the heavy yoke of their oppressors. For 70 years, their identity as God's chosen people had been threatened, harassed, curtailed, and persecuted. They could not live where they wanted to live, work where they wanted to work, worship as they felt called, or do many of the things that we take for granted as a free people in a free country. They were at the, back, uh, they were at the beck and call of their emperor and his empire. And as such, they were forced into a subservient role for generations, far removed from God's protection in the lands that were promised to their ancestor, Abraham. Their very existence as a distinct people was constantly under threat by the empire that sought to keep them underfoot for the benefit of imperial greatness, no matter how many people it squashed along the way. Our prophecies for this week do not center on the doom and gloom that accompanied their conquering, but rather who they would be as a people once they were free to return home, to reclaim their ancestral lands, religion, and way of life. It makes sense that their sense of identity and confidence in themselves as a distinct nation and group of people would be at a near all-time low. They had been displaced for the better part of a century. So how would they come together again? Who would lead them and how? More importantly, how would they distinguish themselves as a distinct people after decades of being mixed up with others from all over the empire? Those who were called to be set apart from the rest of the world would surely have a hard time redefining themselves after having been mixed amongst the milieu of imperial masses for so long. And we can imagine in such circumstances that God might desire for the returning Israelites to avoid interacting with outsiders as they rebuilt Jerusalem and reestablished themselves in the Promised Land. When Joshua led the Hebrew people into the Holy Lands for the first time, they were commanded that they were not to intermarry, uh, with any of the locals already living in the land, or even to let them live, at least as recorded in Deuteronomy. In that era of conquest, 
God sought to establish the people as wholly devoted to Yahweh alone. And a way of doing that was to ensure that there were no co-religionists or idol worshippers left in the land to compete for the faith of the Israelites. If God instructed the Israelites to do that the first time around, why won't God do that again? Moreover, for a people whose identity had been threatened and severely weakened by 70 years of suffering under the thumb of empire, shouldn't it have been a priority for them to focus on themselves first before worrying about anyone else? We can easily imagine God telling them to focus on protecting their own first and foremost. Speaking in the name of the Lord, it is not hard to imagine Isaiah saying that they should hunker down, batten down the hatches, circle the wagons, and man the ramparts, so to speak. Especially as relates to foreigners who so recently had controlled everything they said, did, and believed. But what did Isaiah really prophesy? Thus says the Lord, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Foreigners, others would be brought to the Lord's holy mountain in order to minister in the Lord's name, keep the Sabbath, and make the Lord's house a house of prayer for all nations. To a people who had been displaced, dispossessed, and despairing for decades, God promised that foreigners would secure the Lord's presence within their reclaimed homeland. To those whom we could easily imagine chanting things like Jerusalem for the Jews, Israel for the Israelites, or something like that. God's pro God promises instead that Zion, the Lord's holy mountain, would then be exalted not just by God's chosen people, but by foreigners from all nations. Prayers from all corners of this wide world would be heard and elevated in the Lord's sanctuary. And the Lord's house would be all the greater because it would be a, then be a place for all and not just for some. This is a prophetic reality and vision that should challenge us throughout the ages and the generations. We should make no mistake. Isaiah's prophecy is a direct challenge to the group identities that still bind us and gather us to this day. The work of reclaiming the Lord's holy mountain centered the chosen <clears throat> people's collective identity when they were returning from Babylon. Letting foreigners sacrifice and pray there too was a direct threat to their then fragile and vulnerable identity as a scattered people desperately trying to hold on to who they were. Yet, 
though it was a threat to their identity as a chosen people. The inclusion of all nations proved God is more faithful and greater than we can be on our own. Because the Lord's house is a house where prayers we will never understand, said in languages we will never know, are heard just as faithfully as those we have whispered since childhood. May we always be challenged by the truth that God reigns as the Lord over all, even those who seem the most strange and foreign to us. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I hope that you have enjoyed this week's sermon podcast. If you would like to hear more, read my blog, or get a copy of my book called The Church Unknown, go to www.revsethnelson.com. If you feel called to support our ministry, I invite you to go to our church's website at flcronan.org and click on the Offerings tab. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.